cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Fran Kinnery has had an incredible career at the Vanguard Group. He is currently the global head of private equities, but he's been there for 23 years working on things like portfolio construction and investment strategy. He is incredibly insightful and thoughtful person. He looks at the world from a very unique perspective relative to, hey, he sits uh, at at one of the largest investment managers in the world. The Vanguard Group runs, you know, over $7 trillion for 30 million clients. And so that makes him the perfect person to speak to about portfolios, equities, bonds, private equity. I found this conversation to be absolutely fascinating And I think you will also. So with no further ado, my interview with Vanguard Group's Fran Kinnery. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, once again, I have an extra special guest. His name is Fran Kinnery, and he is Vanguard's global head of private investments, Previously, he was principal in the investment strategy group and global head of portfolio construction at the $7 trillion Vanguard Group, where he has worked for 23 years. Uh, He is one of the people who helped create the concept of Advisors Alpha, which focuses on advice and behavioral counseling. Last year, he was named to head up Vanguard's private equity initiative, My firm, Ritholtz Wealth Management, works with Vanguard. They're one of the biggest fund providers that we operate with, and I have been privileged to not only interview every CEO that Vanguard has ever had, some multiple times, but a number of other people from various departments, research, stocks, bonds, et cetera, including Fran. This is our our second conversation, and I just want to make it clear and transparent that my firm has a relationship with Vanguard. Fran Kennery, welcome back to Masters in Business. Thanks, Barry. It's great to be back on the show with you. So you've been at Vanguard since 1997, but clearly this is a new role, Global Head of Private Investments. Tell us about how this new initiative came about and your role in that. Yeah, I've been very lucky, Barry. I've been there, as you said, 23 years, and I've had the great fortune to help Vanguard with three startups, which, you know, a firm that's been around since 1975 and as large as we are to help three startups um, is just been great for me, and I'm just very humbled for that opportunity. I arrived in 97, as you mentioned, and my role was to help Vanguard start its advice initiatives. Um, my role was to head up the investment and financial planning methodology for our advice uh, launch in 1997. Once that was up and running um, in 2001, they asked me to help start up Vanguard's investment counseling and research group, and that was then rebranded to the investment strategy group. Uh, that team was really responsible, and my specific role asset class research, portfolio construction, financial planning, wealth planning, investor behavior, um, and then, as you mentioned, advisors alpha. So in that role, I had covered the asset classes and had written several research reports on private equity. 
And so when the senior leaders of Vanguard decided to go into private equity, I was just very lucky and humbled that they selected me to lead the entry to market. Hmm, quite interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the firm's history and philosophy. Uh, Jack Bogle was notorious for wanting to keep things simple and inexpensive, so much so he wasn't even thrilled with ETFs, which were potentially traded every day. How can you do private equity in a way that's consistent with your founder's core principles? Yeah, and, and Barry, you and I know each other, um, and, and most people know Jack and I had a pretty close relationship you know, up until his passing in 2019. I was very lucky to stay very close to him. Uh, we would catch up for lunch on a monthly basis. And, and I think, as you said, he was mostly concerned with ETFs and would they trade, right? Because really an ETF is an index fund, which was, you know, certainly Jack was a champion of indexing, but distributed on an exchange rather than bought and sold directly uh, at Vanguard. And so certainly he would believe in all of the attributes of ETFs, but he really was concerned would investors use them properly. And so I would show him the data, especially the Vanguard ETFs, these were building block portfolios that were not traded. Certainly, there's five or six institutional products that uh, trade with high velocity, but they're mostly used by institutional investors and more of a, a surrogate or a replacement for you know, overnight exposure. And so, but if you look at the majority of ETFs, uh, they have really good holding periods and used uh, correctly. We would say that private equity would, you know, had Jack uh, been alive, uh, would would embrace the offer. Um, a lot of people do not know that Vanguard started, Jack started Vanguard as an actively managed shop. And so what Jack really stood for was taking institutional world-class investment offers down to Main Street investors. And so private equity and, and trying to democratize or bring private equity to retail Main Street investors, I think he would be cheering me on. Huh. Well, the one thing you don't have to worry about with private equity is excess trading, and we'll talk about the liquidity premium or illiquidity premium in a little bit, but let's talk about the concept of Vanguard bringing private equity to retail investors. Tell us about how this process is going. Yeah, so the process is going very well, Barry. We launched in February, uh, right before the, you know the COVID uh, shutdowns in February of 2020. Uh, we decided to stage this in very thoughtfully and very carefully, meaning that we started uh, Vanguard has an OCIO business, which is an institutional asset management business where the endowment and foundation turns over the keys to us to manage the portfolio. Uh, private equity has been used in some of the most sophisticated endowments and foundations and sovereign wealth funds for 30 or 40 years and has really you know, improved outcomes for those who have used private equity well. So we started in our OCIO space, as I mentioned, February of 2020. Uh, you may have seen the press release or the audience may have seen the press release in May. Uh, we then extended that to our ultra-high-net-worth retail direct investors. And then later this year, we will be uh, expanding that further to our personal advised clients, which is our retail advisory business, um, at the qualified level, right? There are still regulatory gates here, so our offer right now will be at the qualified, the QP level and the accredited level um, in, in short, it's having a certain asset and wealth threshold to make it through that gate. So I'm kind of fascinated by how Vanguard does this on a regular basis. Something starts out essentially with an institutional audience and eventually works its way down a series of tiers till it's at mom-and-pop mainstream uh, investors. So... You did this with just about everything else that Vanguard offers, but let's stick with private equity. It starts out institutional. It goes to outsourced chief investment officers, uh, accredited investors, uh, advised investors. Will this eventually wake, make its way down to mom-and-pop Main Street investors? 
That's our goal. Um, if you read the original press release, Tim Buckley, who is our CEO, and I have worked on this closely together, our goal is to really uh, bring this to Main Street investors. Uh, but I want to be clear, under the right conditions, Barry, and what I mean by that is um, we don't want to put private equity out there for retail investors to just buy this direct, meaning that an investor can come in and, and, and put 50% of their assets we believe it has a really strong place where we are designing the portfolio. Uh, you, you know, I was the head of portfolio construction for 17 years here at Vanguard. So whether we are doing it through our own advice, where we are saying that what the allocation will be as part of a multi-asset class portfolio in our OCIO business or in our personal advisor business, but then there's also embedded advice, things like target retirement funds where you know, we actually set the asset allocations, we rebalance it. Uh, these are long-duration investors, and we think that that would be a very, very prudent way to bring private equity to Main Street investors. So we're working on that, um, and we're going to keep working on that, and that is our long-term vision. What does the timeline look like for this? Because I imagine this is a slow, gradual, iterative process that involves a series of Let's try this. We'll find out what the bugs are. All right, let's fix that. Now we have this issue we have to resolve. What does this timeline look like over the next decade? Yeah, the timelines are, as you mentioned, very difficult um, and tricky, but I, I think you characterized that correctly. By us starting in the OCIO space, you're talking about very large endowments where the peer group has used private equity. Then we go to the ultra-high net worth, $5 million plus, um, direct or advised. We're going to learn a lot. We're going to fix a lot of things. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, we are going to put all of our efforts to bring this to Main Street investors because we actually think target retirement funds um, could really benefit from private equity when you look at the returns and the diversification and the duration of these investors, you know, 30 to 70-year horizons. Um so we're going to do it very thoughtfully, very carefully, and so I really don't have a timeline for you, Barry. You spent 17 years doing portfolio construction at Vanguard. Where does private equity fit into an investor's portfolio? Yeah, the way we are thinking about it, Barry, after you know extensive, as you mentioned, 17 years of research, uh, we would think that the private equity allocation comes out of your public equity allocation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just easy to use the numbers or the math. Let's say a client is 60, 40, 60% equity, 40% fixed income. Uh, we would think that the allocation comes out of that 60 component. So let's just use a number. Let's just say 30%. An investor decides to be 30% private equity. Hey now. So instead of being 60, 40 stock bond, you know, the 30 on 60 would be 18, right? So now they would be 18% private equity and 42% public equity, maintaining their 40% in bonds. And when you look at that, so you're not really increasing the risk budget of the portfolio. Um, in fact, you actually have diversification because all of these operating private companies are not in the public universe. The correlations are not at one. And you have return enhancement. So, um, it, you know, it is a really viable, prudent asset class to add into a portfolio if it's funded out of the right way. And we would be funding this from public equity. My reaction was because I immediately thought you were talking 30, 30, 40. But what I misinterpreted is you, you meant 30% of the 60, not 30% of the overall. That's right. So instead of 30, 30, 40, you would be 42 public equity, 18 private equity, and then still 40% on bonds. All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the various private equity firms you work with. There are thousands of them. How did you begin the process of narrowing it down to a handful of them, and, and what was the vetting process like? Yeah, so while uh, many investors may know Vanguard is indexing, we are actually one of the largest um, and actually have one of the most successful active management practices um, in, in the asset management space. I mentioned that we started Vanguard as an actively managed firm. And so we have, you know, our entire history of doing manager oversight and selection and search. 
And so when it, you know, we, we decided to go into the space, the next step was canvassing, uh, the managers, uh, who are world class. And so we, you know, we, we went through a process of, you know, we have a database and we started with narrowed it down to, let's say, 40 plus firms. Uh, we then had deep meetings with about 10 of those firms. And then we actually bought, you know, did site visits on site and, and then had them visit us with five firms. Uh, we, we narrowed that down to two, um, where we really spent another extra deep dive. And then we selected Harborvest, um, as the final winner of, of, of the partnership to move forward with. And so we have a long history of understanding what works in active management. Um, our actively managed funds have outperformed consistently their peers and actually have outperformed the indexes they track on the public side. And HarborVest performance has continually to outperform the median and average private equity manager. So you know, we can do the due diligence for our investors, and that's, that's a lot uh, to, to put forward for the average investor. And so we are very comfortable that we have found a great partner in HarborVest. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. So I want to talk a little more about HarborVest in a moment, but first, I should have said this, and I admitted this, but let me clarify this. Uh, it's more than 30% of the seven-something trillion dollars in assets are, are actively managed, and Vanguard's ability to identify managers uh, who can be successful is a core competency. Am, am I getting that right? And please correct me on on my numbers in terms of 30% and $7 trillion. I know those numbers move around a lot. Yeah, that's right, Barry. And, and size has never been a goal for Vanguard. So I know people will look at the $7 trillion or they'll look at the $1.7 trillion we have in active, and that's what we have. Um, we believe that our, our size is, you know, first off, we have 30 million investors. So it's not Vanguard's assets. Vanguard is the steward of 30 million investors who have trusted us with their assets because we have served them well. Uh, we believe that the investment population is a very, very smart uh, population. There's incredible competition in the mutual fund space. There's actually, I believe, three times the amount of mutual funds that there are individual stocks. Right. So there's a lot of choice out there. And I think our size and our growth has come from serving investors very well on investment performance and on client service. And so our size is really a tribute to, you know, serving them well. But as you mentioned, we are one of the largest active managers. We continuously are in the 75th uh, top decile relative to the active peer group across all the asset classes, you know, so taxable fixed income, tax-exempt fixed income, and equity. And then lastly, it's, it's one thing to beat your peer group, but we actually outperform the indexes that we track. So I know this movement to indexing has been strong. It's probably been warranted. Um, and indexing should outperform the average manager, but that loses sight of that not all managers are average. If you can find talent and you deliver that at a reasonable cost, the evidence would show that Vanguard's active funds together have added about 50 to 100 basis points on top of the indexes that they track. And that's very meaningful if you can compound that over 30 to 40 years. Um, and so our investors have been very well served with our active offer. So let's talk about HarborVest, your, your partner on this private equity uh, for investors at Vanguard. How did you land on them and tell us what they bring that is 
unique compared to some of the people that uh, might have come in second or third? Yeah, I think it all starts with, um, you know, how we think about what matters in active management. Um, and that all starts with the firm and the people. Those are the two critical uh, components. Uh, the firm, we want to make sure that they are putting clients first. Um, and I know that's a the common terminology, put clients first. But all of our interactions with HarborVest were basically if we treat our clients well, if we give them high outcomes, growth follows, as opposed to growth being the mission. The mission should be serving clients well. You know, the Simon Sinek quote of, you know, leaders eat last. And so we think about that, that our asset owners at Vanguard, and it became very clear to us that the asset owners of HarborVest, the clients come first, the owners eat last. They take the spoils that are left over after the clients do well. And we heard that time and time again. It shows in how their partnership is structured, uh, meaning that economics, and we see this time and time again, when economics are very widely spread out throughout the organization, that attracts the top talent. Um, and this is a talent and people business. So when ownership is public or ownership is controlled by, let's say, a few founding founders, um, you may not get necessarily the talent when the economics and the rewards are spread out much more uh, democratically. And so we found a firm that has close to 40 years of experience with a structure and alignment of client first and the people and the culture. And then lastly, we look at performance, and the performance has just been outstanding uh, relative to the median and average private equity offer. Quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the Vanguard approach to private equity, starting with returns. What sort of returns is Vanguard looking for from PE relative to, you know, plain vanilla stocks and bonds? Yeah, our, our return expectation, again, is all formed off of our deep research, Barry. Um, so if you were to look at the median private equity firm relative to you know, let's say the public markets uh, and all world public markets, you, you get about average returns, right? You're going to get, you know, returns on top of the market. So it's all about manager selection. Um, but here you're familiar with the quartile rankings of public managers where they're quite wide, but in private equity, they're, they're almost two X that meaning that the, the top quartile um, has returns uh, somewhere in the high twenties and, and the fourth quartile is, is negative 14 um, and then in around, you know, quartile three and two, it's, it's right around, uh, you know, the average. So this is all about manager selection. And if you were able to, you don't have to be perfect, right? So if you were to just throw darts um, and, and get a manager in each quartile, so 25% in each quartile, so you would say you have no skill, uh, my team and I have done this work, you would end up with a return that's about 170 basis points over public markets with zero skill. That's probably the illiquidity premium. Sure. All asset classes like on-the-run, off-the-run treasuries or ETFs that are the same basket of ETFs, the more you know, traded they are. So the 1.7 is probably, first off, you know, a liquidity premium of 1.7, if you have no manager skill, uh, would be something that you would not want to leave on the table. But if you even have moderate skill where you would select instead of the 25, 25, 25, 25, but you were able to select 30% out of quartile one and two and 20% out of quartile three and four, uh, the returns quickly approach 400 basis points over public markets. And then if you have higher skill, again, this, you know, I'm not saying this is easy, but if you're able to select 40% of your managers in the top quartile, 30% in quartile two, 20% in quartile three, and then 10% in quartile four, uh, the returns are about 700 basis points over. Uh, HarborVest experience has been in around that range, seven to 800 basis points over public wow. markets. Uh, Vanguard being conservative, we, we believe the illiquidity premium will drop. It has averaged in the past about 300 basis points. 
but let's say it's half of that at one five and close to that no skill. Mm-hmm. And if Harbor Vest can do even half of what they have done in the past and, and are just able to get slightly better than manager selection, um, our forward-looking estimate is our investors will get between three and 400 basis points or three to 4% more than public equity. And that's going to be very significant in this low-return world. You know, I happened to listen just recently to your interview with Jack Brennan, um, mm-hmm. and you talked about the 60-40 portfolio, and I share your concerns and Jack's concerns, like where our returns going to come from. And so to be able to add 3 or 4% over public equity and fund it from public equity, uh, we think that that is extremely prudent for investors to do. So no doubt 400 basis points gets a lot of people's attention, but there are a lot of other reasons to consider private equity. Let, let's talk about correlation. How closely are the returns in private equity correlated to what we see in the public markets? Yeah, so the correlations, uh, and it, you would have to look at this twofold, right? Because the correlations, um, since a lot of private equity doesn't mark, meaning they're not marked to market, the right. public markets mark to market every single day. And so, um, every tick. If you were to, if, if you were to mark to market the assets, like if you have, and, and, and Harbor Fest does this and the industry does this too, you can create an algorithm or a beta to try to get what your daily marks would be. And even if you were to do that, you would see correlations um, below one somewhere, let's say, you know, 0. 0.8, 0.85. Um, but again, you and I, Barry, have talked a lot about behavioral finance and Advisors Alpha was built on behavioral finance. The fact that these do not mark and the prices are stale, and one could say that this is a phantom benefit, and, mm-hmm. I, and I'm not disagreeing, but if you were only to price the total stock market or the S&P 500 every six months on a lag, I believe investors would do better because uh, a lot of times we're reacting uh, each and every day um, to what happened yesterday. And does that really matter when our horizon is 20, 30, 40 years? So uh, we believe that this will provide diversification and behavioral benefits because of how private equity works. Right. The advantage of homes are that you don't get a price every day. And we're recording this the day after uh, it looked like the markets were going to be off uh, 2%. And on a day when the markets have bounced back 1%, that sort of volatility can easily distract investors uh, from the long term. So let's stick with private equity in long term. Given how expensive public stocks are, and by many measures, we are at the upper range of valuations, uh, private equity multiples have followed along. And PE is uh, about as pricey as, as stocks are, more or less. Uh, it's, it's a rough estimate. Uh, what are the concerns about private equity multiples being as pricey as they are today? Yeah, I think uh, your setup there, Barry, is correct. Uh, public equities are probably in their top, you know, top twenty percent, and private equity has followed. Um, but I also think that um, somewhat misses the point. We, you know, we do not believe markets have an expiration date. Uh, you would have said public equity and private equity were overvalued in twenty sixteen. They've gone on to more than double. Um, we have found that people that that market time markets um, really. Uh, a lot of people get celebrated for calling the top in 99 or they get celebrated for calling the top in 07. But I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at charts of my S&P 500 at Vanguard and the private equities. If you were the worst market time or ever and you bought in March of 2000, um, you, you, the Harbor Vest fund for that vintage was up 10.5%. And the U.S. equity market over that time horizon was up 3.6. So let, let's say like the 10 to 15 year return off of that. Same thing, you know, if you bought at the top of 07, 08. Um, you know, investors are, I, I, I think the conundrum here is, what do you do? You, you, you take money off the table and put it in fixed income instruments that are yielding, you know, somewhere below 1.5%. And so market timing has proven to be um, probably more investors create more bear markets on their own in opportunity costs by using simple metrics like valuations to try to call the tops. And so we would advise against that. Uh, The second thing I would say, Barry, we also talked about this will be funded from public equity. So if you are 60-40, 
you're not really increasing the value at risk or the risk budget of the portfolio. You would be moving that 60 down to 42 and putting it in private equity at 18. And so we would do that all day, whether it's high valuation, medium valuation, or low valuation. Makes a lot of sense. And you're locking in a longer-term time horizon for that portion of the uh, portfolio. Have you considered other types of private investments, things like venture capital or hedge funds beyond private equity? Yeah, so maybe I could walk through what is in this uh, offer because it actually is a very diversified offer that we have uh, built for our investors. Um, You mentioned some of them. So this will have diversification of stage. So it will have venture capital within the HarborVest Vanguard offering. Uh, The growth equity and venture capital growth equity is later stage venture. Uh, this portfolio will have somewhere around 20 to 25 percent uh, growth equity and venture. Um, it'll then the remainder of that will be in buyouts, which are traditional leverage buyouts. Those are more seasoned uh, companies, more mature companies. So you do get a lot of diversification of stage. Um, you'll have geographic diversification within here. So think of this as the total stock market, if you will, of private equity. Mm-hmm. It'll be globally diversified, stage diversified. Like in the in the public markets, we use growth and value and large, mid, small. Uh, this will be geographically diversified. It'll have venture capital. It'll have buyout. It'll have primary investments, secondary investments, um, and direct co-invest. So it is a real turnkey solution. Uh, that at the end of the day, it'll have you know six to eight hundred operating companies. And that would be hard for any investor that's, let's say, under $2 billion to try to replicate because most of these managers are very specialized inside of HarborVest, right? So uh, what, what makes a great venture capital manager might be different than an Asian buyout manager. And so this will have 30 to 40 general partners inside with seven, 800 operating companies so very hard for any investor under, let's say, $2 billion to kind of replicate this offer. Uh, so it is very well diverse. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. So that number of companies under a variety of managers, under a variety of sectors, it leads me to ask the question, are you going to run into any capacity constraints if you ramp this up? How big can this scale at Vanguard? Can this be a trillion-dollar line of business? Yeah, I would say uh, maybe address that two ways. One, um, and maybe we'll get to the fees of private equity later, but let me address that a little bit here. HarborVest and the general partners that they work with um, are mostly compensated on performance-based fees, um, it's known as carry in the private equity space. And so the economics to them really uh, start to accrue uh, once they hit a hurdle rate above 8%. The management fee that they get pretty much just covers the operating costs of what they do. So they do not want to give away capacity that they do not believe they can source without returns that are double digits and above double digits because that would not be good for their business. So they watch capacity both at the general partner level and at HarborVest level. Uh, they, they, it's probably one of the things they are, uh, you know, obviously since the economics are tied to that, they're going to watch that very closely. Um, so we have a runway with them, and we think it's an you know, intermediate runway. 
Uh, but if we do well here and we are able to democratize this asset class, um, I would say very much like we started with one active manager, uh, the Wellington uh, Group, uh, and now we have close to 30 active managers. So we are continuing and will continue to think about, do we need manager two and then manager three? Mm-hmm. And we feel we are very well equipped uh, to source a second and third manager uh, when that time comes. Uh, but together, Harborvest and Vanguard are looking at capacity very closely. So let's put some flesh on on those numbers on those fees. I'm assuming when you talk about, you know, just the the cost of of, of administrative expenses on a fund, that's going to be some and, and private equity obviously much more expensive than managing an ETF or or an index. I'm going to guess that's going to be about 50 basis points, and then that eight percent. Uh, that's a pretty good long-term S&P 500 return number. Their fees are their outperformance over that 8%. Am I getting that more or less right? That's right. The carry does not start to kick in until a return hurdle of 8%. And so that's why most private equity managers are shooting for you know 15 to 20 to 25% uh, gross uh, returns. And, and, and the best ones have been able to do that. And that's where the economics really lie. And so I think it gets back to aligned interests, right? When most of the fee stack is performance-based and above some hurdle, uh, everyone is operating under the same incentives. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that, that, that makes private equity a very aligned uh, investment and asset class to client outcomes. Hmm. Quite interesting. You mentioned you want to be diversified globally, uh, in terms of the investment, uh, I'm assuming that that means everywhere around the world. What about the investors? Is this the same? Uh, is this U.S. only, or is this going to be open to global investors? So today we're starting in the U.S., just like uh, we're staging this out by client segment and working, um, you know, where uh, we are, you know, mostly working with qualified investors and the regulation that's here. Uh, eventually, we will you know, try to move this down market to Main Street U.S. investors. And eventually, we are looking at how we could utilize this in some of our um, non-U.S. offerings, whether it be single fund solutions or whether it be in our advice outside of the U.S. But again, no timelines on that. But that is, again, probably where we will be at some point in the future. Interesting. And, and you had mentioned you were working with advisors on this. What do you think the process is going to be like uh, before this reaches uh, retail? Is this going to be, you know, a long process, or do you think you're going to get there sooner rather than than later? Um, I mean, our hope is to get there sooner rather than later. Um, You know, we talked earlier about a 60-40 portfolio. I mean, I think the Main Street investor, let's just take, you know, a school teacher, a nurse, you know, uh, who is saving diligently for retirement, um, I don't know where their returns are going to come from. I mean, m- most of the fixed income investments are below uh, inflation. And so, you, you know, the sooner we can get private equity into Main Street investors and where we are the allocator of it and we do it in a thoughtful way, um, I think it'll have long-term compounding advantages for these investors who need it the most, who are saving diligently, doing the right thing, saving with a long duration, and just hoping to get real returns in retirement. Uh, there's no real reason to save. Um, you know, saving is a deferment of future consumption. And if you're saving and getting a negative real return, uh, that, that really isn't a trade-off that most people, you know, would welcome. And so we're trying to, you know, make sure that we can generate real returns for investors saving for retirement. So all of our energies and efforts are on this end. I just don't have a timeline. So let's stick with retirement. Is this better suited for qualified tax-deferred accounts, 401ks and and IRAs, versus traditional portfolios? And how might this fit into a target date fund? Yeah, I would say both set of investors use it well. I know you work with high-net-worth families, Barry, and I do Mm -hmm. as well. I work with a lot of family offices and and high-net-worth taxable clients, and a lot of clients think about after-tax returns. Um, not to get too technical, but uh, this is a, a, a good portfolio for tax and wealth and estate planning. 
Uh, it follows a J curve, which means it has some early year losses, which are valuable to high net worth families. And it's a great estate planning because you can actually get assets out of your estate at, let's say, X. And then 15 years later, they come out hopefully at two to two and a half times X. So we do see the, this is a very, very uh, popular private equity strategy in, you know, some of our high net worth trusts and estate planning clients. On the other end of the spectrum is just Main Street investors who are saving in a target retirement fund. And then for target date funds, which would be in a defined contribution plan, um, where Vanguard would, you know, obviously do the multi-asset class portfolio construction and the allocation and the rebalancing. Um, and these are long-duration investors. Typically, they have a 30-year investment horizon and then maybe a 50- to 60-year life horizon. And the other great thing about TRFs is we know exactly when they're going to retire and when they're going to shift from accumulation to decumulation and retirement income. So we could have a private equity glide path um, that, that we mentioned earlier. Let's say you have 15, 20, 25% to private equity uh, when you're 30 years away to retirement, and we just stop investing in that as you approach five to 10 years prior to retirement. So when you start retirement income, uh, private equity lands at zero. So we, uh, we see it as a perfect place. Uh, for both ends of the spectrum and really for all investors uh, who are looking to have real returns. Hmm. Quite interesting. So let's talk a little bit about investor appetite. How strong is the demand for this sort of investment uh, from the public today? Yeah, the investment demand for private equity, both on our launch, but private equity in general, has uh, been setting records. Uh, you probably read in the, in the press. Uh, fundraising in 19, 20, and, and so far in 21 has just been off the charts. Uh, one could argue it's cyclical, or others could argue it's secular. I'm on the secular side of this. Um, you know, we, we do see that some investors are leading uh, edge of, you know, progressiveness. And so you see that top endowments and foundations and sovereign wealth funds have been in private equity since the early 1990s. They've increased their allocations. I think this is the rest of the market catching up, Barry. Uh, so mm -hmm. the demand is quite strong. I, I do not see it as cyclical. We've been through three of the largest bear markets in the market's history. When you look at the Internet tech, tech bubble and then the 08-09 global financial crisis and then the quick blip in COVID, and yet you continue to see private equity grow. Uh, so I believe this is structural, and I believe it's because of the investment case both on diversification and what it can do to improve outcomes on performance. So I do not see this as being cyclical. I would be shocked if 5 and 10 and 15 years that private equity is not larger than it is today. Hmm, interesting. So there's a quote, and I think it's yours, that, uh, that I want to share. Quote, restrictions on who can invest in private equity should be based on investment horizon and not income or wealth, unquote. Discuss. Yeah, so I think the current regulatory has a lot of merit. You know, right now, the gates to get into private equity are wealth and income, and I think it does have merit, and I think the regulators really do care about investors, and they care deeply about investors, and they would argue that these investors could afford uh, to lose assets when they have this type of wealth and income threshold. But I would argue, let, let's just say you take someone who is a high spender, someone who's spending 8 or 9% of their portfolio, uh, whether it's just a high net worth client or an entertainer or a sports figure, even if they have $10 million and they're spending a lot of money, I would not recommend private equity to that. I mean, it is an illiquid asset. Um, and, and so I really think it's, it's much more appropriate to think about what is the horizon of the investor? Um, is the asset being managed by a fiduciary? Uh, so, you know, what we talked about, target retirement funds or our advice at Vanguard, we are managing those assets and we would rebalance those assets. So I think when it is professionally managed and it meets the time horizon and the investor is in accumulation or slight accumulation, that's where I would put private equity. But if someone walked in and they had, you know, $15 million and making a million dollars a year, but they were spending two or three, 
and you and I, Barry, know clients just like that, uh, mm-hmm. they would qualify, but I would not put private equity in their portfolio. So I understand why wealth and income uh, really around those clients could afford to lose it. But if you take a step back from that, um, I think time horizon, whether you're in the accumulation or decumulation, and whether it's professionally managed by a multi-asset class professional would be the real gates of prudence uh, as opposed to just wealth and income. That makes a lot of sense. The illiquidity premium only works if you don't need to tap into that capital for that entire lockup period. Um, But I'm sure there are pretty substantial penalties for getting out of a private equity investment early. How do you manage that if someone's circumstances change and they need the cash sooner versus uh, their original plans? I think the, there there is a secondary market, Barry, that is growing and getting closer and closer to fair market value. Um, I would say it's like any other asset class we see, including ETFs. If you're trying to sell out because the market is under pressure or contagion, uh, you should expect a large discount like we saw in 08, 09 and during in COVID. Even in high-quality fixed income, uh, you see discounts under stress. However, if if your circumstances change and you just want to get out of private equity and it's not in contagion and you want to do it at, you know, over time, like in a quarterly or semi-annual, a lot, the secondary market does accommodate windows where you can sell your private equity back and the discounts are not that extreme uh, if you're doing it in the qualified times that the secondary market allows liquidity events. So I would say it's, you know, it's twofold. If you're selling because of market contagion or in market stress, expect a large discount like you would in most other asset classes. If you're doing it because of non-market related events and you do it in the windows that are allowed, uh, the discount will still be there. I want to be very clear. Um, No different than trying to sell municipal bonds or corporate bonds, Um, but, but it would not be that detrimental. But it is clear we want investors to understand that they are buying a long-term investment and hopefully their circumstances do not change that would warrant them selling it. So that's one of the unique challenges of private equity versus, you know, plain vanilla stocks and bonds. What are other challenges that are unique to this asset class? Yeah, I think the other challenges are manager selection and manager access. Most of the top managers are filled oversubscribed. And so for you are, or I, Barry, or even, a, you know, if you're on, sit on a committee of a, an endowment, if you're going to start private equity today, uh, the list of general partners that you will get access to is probably a very small list, and it's probably maybe not the top quartile list. And that gets back to why we went with HarborVest, 38 years of doing this. Um, and, and by being an investor early and consistently, uh, access is granted to those who have been there first and who have been there consistently. So I think it will be a challenge for someone who is entering private equity today to get top quartile managers unless they're working with someone like Vanguard or someone like a HarborVest because access will not be there uh, if you try to just you know do this on your own. And if I recall correctly, Vanguard has something like 30 million clients. Is that number about right? That is right. Yeah, that's right, Barry. So, you know, a lot of times people look at our size in AUM, but I would really direct, uh, you know, the AUM is, you know, we are just the professional steward of 30 million investors. It's their assets. They own the assets. Uh, we are managing those assets on, on the behalf of those investors, 30 million uh, who have entrusted us to do well for them. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. 
EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. So clearly you have the expertise uh, in terms of uh, custodying assets and reporting and doing the performance reporting as well. But private equity seems like a unique set of, I don't want to say nightmares, but it's so complicated given how money is not only placed but drawn down over time and investing um, in funds as needed as opportunities come along. What were some of the real complications of setting up the back office of, of private equity when you're working with Vanguard and HarborVest? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, Barry, because a lot of times the focus is all on the investment performance and the diversification and the outcomes. But you are correct that the client experience and how this works is not as simple as buying an ETF or a mutual fund. Um, And and we spent uh, a lot of time and technology dollars um, to make sure that this would, you know, not only would the investment experience be world class, but the client experience would be world class. So we put a lot of time and energy and effort to make sure that the interface and and how the capital calls work uh, and how everything now being digital online uh, really helps uh, improve the experience for clients. So not only do we we believe we will have a world-class investment experience, but we believe we will have a world-class client experience. Um, and I think it's, again, why, you know, thinking about it more as an advised, part of an advised multi-asset class where we are moving all of the money around, whether it's rebalancing their capital calls, certainly self-directed, ultra-high net worth clients who are used to this are used to how this works. Um, but I think in an advised capacity, whether it's through our OCIO, our personal advisor services, or maybe one day in a TRF, we can alleviate a lot of that mechanical cash flow, capital call, moving it from public markets to private markets and back. And I think that will only improve the experience of clients. They won't they'll see one nav or one, one total return of all their investments rolled up. And I, and I think the experience will be enhanced from that. So I have a few questions left before I get to my favorite questions. And let's stick with Vanguard. I haven't heard many of your competitors looking into private equity as a mass asset class for their investors. What is it about Vanguard? What do you bring to the table that makes you so uniquely suited to do this? You you seem to be the only large asset manager that's looking to forget democratizing stocks. You're looking to democratize private equity. Yeah, I think that's an astute observation, Barry. I think it gets back to our roots and our mission and why Vanguard was founded. Um, Indexing was around before we started Vanguard. I mean, it was an institutional, you know, know, Samsonite and Wells Fargo. So Mm -hmm. indexing was around, active management around. And so Vanguard's whole purpose and mission was to take, you know, institutional investment offerings that have served these large asset pools well down to Main Street mom-and-pop investors. So I think that's probably why you see us trying to democratize or equal access this to investors who need it the most. Um, Obviously, sovereign wealth funds and endowments have been very well served uh, by private equity, and they don't need Vanguard necessarily to do private equity. And so our goal and our mission from our founding was to make sure that the little person and, and you know, the mom-and-pop investor, the Main Street investor, was on a level footing with the largest sovereign wealth funds and the largest endowments and foundations. So I think this plays right in our entire roots and our mission and our history. So I love this quote of yours on this, this basic concept. Quote, it took us 35 years to do this on indexing, 20 years to do it on active funds, so maybe 20 years from now, private equity and its access to world-class managers for the average investor will look very much like indexing did uh, over the course of 1975 to 1995. Yeah, so I think that's exactly right. That is our hope and that's our aspiration. When I arrived at Vanguard in 1997, 
it's hard to believe indexing assets were around 8% of mutual fund assets. Um, and so it did take quite a while. Uh, you may remember, you know, indexing was called un-American. Um, the, the advisor community did not want any part of indexing because the value pro- – this gets back to some of the work we've done on Advisors Alpha. The value proposition of most advisors was were hire me and I'll perform, you know, I'll, I'll perform the index through tactical allocation or manager selection. And so to see, uh, you know, the diffusion of indexing uh, over the last 20 years has been amazing. And, you know, we hope and we, you know, think that this would be the right thing to do uh, to try to follow that same template for private equity for Main Street investors. So let's use that template and, and look forward 10 or 20 years from now when you're looking at the ensuing 2020 to 2040 period, uh, what would be your measure of success for this project? What metrics are you going to look at to be able to make the determination, hey, this was every bit as successful as indexing and active management was in the earlier iterations of Vanguard? Yeah, so I mentioned a couple times growth and cash flow has never been Vanguard's uh, mission. We believe that growth and cash flow is an outcome of serving investors well and serving them prudently. So my success metrics would be that the performance comes through somewhere like we indicated, three to 400 basis points over. It's provided diversification and that investors who need private equity the most, and I would say that those are those who are saving for retirement, those who do not have access to it, now have access to it. And if those things, three things hold, good performance, good diversification, good client experience, and access is granted, uh, we would we would expect uh, our share of the private equity market uh, to look quite large. Uh, but again, the goal is not to have Vanguard be a leader in private equity or to build assets or to, to take on growth. We think that will be an outcome of serving investors very, very well. And investors typically vote with their feet. And that's what we have seen. It's a smart population. And uh, we think it's an outcome of being served very well. Hmm. Quite interesting. I know I only have you for a limited amount of time, so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Starting with, uh, tell us what you've been streaming during this period of work from home. Uh, What are you watching on Netflix or Amazon Prime, or what podcasts are keeping you entertained? Yes, I kind of knew early on, my my brother is in internal medicine and runs the ICU here at Penn, so I kind of knew early on that this might play out longer, this stay from home than than most. And so I decided to revisit some of the all-time classic, or at least in my opinion, the all-time classic TV series for a second, and in some instances a third. But these are big time commitments, so things like Breaking Bad, uh, the Americans and Homeland, I have rewatched and I've enjoyed every second. So I went back to the, at least what I would call as some of the classics, uh, but 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 is a big time commitment. And I thought I would have the time to do that. And I'm glad I did that. Hmm, quite interesting. Tell us about your early mentors. Uh, who helped shape your career? Yeah, I would kind of break it into three stages of my career, Barry. Um, first and foremost are my parents. And my grandparents, my grandparents were very involved, and my parents were very, very selfless. They gave me unconditional love and support and and just were amazing role models. And I think that was the foundation of all of my good luck that followed from that. And as I moved from there, I would say my my first experience outside of business school, I was hired by Harold Katz and the Katz family office, which was run by Terry Gabrielle, chief investment officer. You know, this guy was a CFA from like the 70s and, um, you know, told me right away after years to get the CFA. So I got the CFA at a very young age and he taught me everything. I, you know, just sat at his hip and had a world-class experience on how to value companies, um, forensic accounting, and, and to be able to like just rip through a company and figure out what it was worth. So both Harold Katz and Terry Gabriel, I think, were the early part of my career and if those two things aren't lucky enough, at 32, I ended up at Vanguard and, and uh, you know, just had such a luck to be able to work with Jack Bogle closely, 
Um, you know, Jack Brennan and I worked on many things together. We're still in contact with him uh, on a pretty regular basis. And then, and then Tim Buckley, who's our current CEO, I've worked with him, you know, pretty much since I landed at Vanguard. I couldn't find three more uh, better mentors if I tried than the three of them. So I've just been very blessed. Yeah, that that's quite a murderer's row of uh, of people to help guide your career. Uh, let's talk about books. Tell us some of your favorites, and what are you reading right now? So some of my favorites, and it's probably back to my what I'm streaming. I've read you know probably a dozen times. Uh, would be two by uh, Caleb. Fooled by Randomness is probably my favorite, and and the other is Anti Fragile. Highly recommended for those who have not read them. Uh, then, then Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project. It's it's really about the special relationship between Kahneman and Tversky and all they've been able to accomplish uh, around human behavior. And I'll stick with you know Kahneman and Tversky. Uh, their book Jun- Judgment Under Uncertainty is still one of the classics of all time. As far as currently, um, you know, mostly what I read, uh, you know, it's just so much to stay on top of the investment news and the news commentary. So I'm very grateful for you, Barry. You do an aggregation each night. I look forward to, you know, getting your email. And, you know, there's so much news out there. So I would say on a daily basis, I'm using some of the key aggregators. Always use yours as first and foremost. So the daily news stream is a lot. And I save the books for when I am you know have some downtime on summer vacation or over the holidays. Hmm. Really interesting. And, and thank you for uh, uh, those kudos. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who was interested in a career in either investment management or private equity? Yeah, I would, I would tell them to go for it, uh, Barry. I, I see so many opportunities on the horizon in investment banking and private equity or you know what you do there as a wealth advisor. I see all three being win-win-win career opportunities. You know, It's a win, first and foremost, for the clients that you serve. I think that makes you know you feel really good about what you're doing every day that you're actually putting your clients first. But also personally, it's it's a profession that if you do it well, uh, the rewards would come to you and your family, and that's you know that's always a good thing. And then lastly, it's a continuous learning, right? The markets are always changing. Uh, you know, you are the headlines change daily and weekly. So what I'm learning in today is so much different than I did last year and the year before that. So. Uh, to me, these are not zero-sum game activities, but these are positive-sum game activities. So I would highly recommend anyone thinking about going into the investment or wealth planning world. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today? You wish you knew 25 or so years ago when you were first getting started in the 90s, long before you ended up at, at Vanguard. Yeah, I, I wish I knew today and, and had a better way to track opportunity costs. Um, and, and what I mean by that, Barry, is, you know, um, we, we often only judge what we did, yet we don't judge what we could have done. And, and you know, we mentioned this a couple times. I, I think more bear markets have been created by investors' own beliefs in what the future will look like than actual bear markets themselves. And if we actually kept score personally or individually of what we did versus what we should have done, I think the gap is going to really surprise people. Um, also, the opportunity cost of, of, of comfort, right? You know, we're talking about where bonds are today under 2%. No one wants to lose 40% in COVID or 55% in GFC. But if you have a 30-year horizon, did it matter over that one or two years? So we pay a huge opportunity cost for comfort. If you have a 30-year horizon or a 20-year horizon, I just would ask everyone to examine the opportunity cost they are creating for themselves uh, for such comfort, right? And, and you know, the, the equity risk premium has been about 500 basis points over bonds, probably likely to hold if not be above that. We talked about private equity being three to four over that, so maybe eight to 10 over bonds. And so, yeah, we are risk-averse creatures. We hate loss. And I think that's natural to hate loss and all the loss aversion, but just do it with eyes wide open on what the opportunity cost you are creating for the comfort of short-term volatility. Huh. Makes sense. Fran, this has really been very fascinating. Thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Fran Kinnery. 
He is Vanguard's global head of private investments. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous 350-something prior discussions. You can find those wherever you feed your podcast fix, iTunes, Spotify, Acast, wherever. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Uh, what Fran was discussing, the daily reading list, that goes out every day at 7 a.m. You can sign up for that uh, at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the wonderful team that helps put these conversations together each week. Maruful is my audio engineer. Paris Walt is my producer. This week, my project manager is Tracy Walsh. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.